whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? My name is Elizabeth Camp. I teach at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, and my work focuses on philosophy of mind and language. I'm especially interested in forms of thought and talk that are odd or marginal from the perspective of standard analytic philosophy. So that has taken me in a bunch of different directions, which I'm slowly starting to think of as more connected. I've been interested in thinking with maps and pictures and animal cognition. I'm especially interested in imagination, uh, in an interpretive perspectives. In language, I'm interested in things like metaphor and sarcasm, insinuation, slurs. Um, and I've also been exploring it, these kinds of issues as they play out in art, especially fiction and poetry. Well, I'm going to ask a follow-up about poetry just because I, I'm worried it might not come up later. And if it does come up again, that's great. But I, I definitely wanted to ask you about this because I know you've written about Wordsworth's, actually, I'm going to say prelude or prelude. I've completely forgotten which is British and which is American. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so transatlantic now. But you've written about Wordsworth. You've written about Emily Dickinson. I mean, could you say something about the relationship between your interest in poetry and your work in analytic philosophy of language? So I think if since this is still the sort of beginning here, I should confess that I am always nervous when I'm writing about or, you know, holding forth professionally about especially poetry, because I feel that I don't spend enough of my own life sort of really grappling with and celebrating and wallowing around in poetry anymore. But I do think that there is, I was, you know, I was an English major as well as a, a philosophy major in college. And um, I grew up, both of my parents loved poetry and, you know, were involved in poetry readings and stuff like that. And I do ultimately think that there is something that's very deeply similar about the two. So this volume I edited about Emily Dickinson and philosophy just came out and Looking at the other, I did not contribute a chapter, but looking at the the chapters in the volume, I really think, especially with her, but in general, there really is something about close analysis and creating something that hangs together and that others that makes sense for others, or that others can really get in, and especially by anchoring it in detail. And that, you know, obviously they're very different methods and very different styles and manifestations, but there's something I think deeply similar. And I don't want to undersell the part that each, that, uh, that, that the, the commonality in either philosophy or poetry. I mean, one, one thing about Dickinson that maybe connects with aspects of language that are odd or marginal for analytic philosophy 
is attention to the materiality of language. I yes. mean, I don't know Dickinson well, but I think of her as working in sound and also, you know, on the envelope poem, sort of working with physical space and sort of inscription in a way that I think the sort of that aspect of language probably doesn't get addressed as much by analytic philosophers as it might. So that is certainly true. And one of the points that a couple of the authors in this volume, sorry to go on about the volume, but no, no, it's great. Um, a couple of the authors make this point that that's actually a form of argumentation, a form of evidence or proof for her. And to us as philosophers, that seems like completely ridiculous, right? I mean, the the sound is a is a this you know highly contingent feature of language. But I think there is a way in which what poets in general do, and I think Dickinson in particular, is to embody meaning in concrete form through things like, you know, alliteration or rhythm in ways that then that embodiment exemplifies, um, is a sample of the phenomenon that's being talked about, of the content. And so you, as the reader, have the experience for yourself, um, have a kind of first-person access to the evidence through this, this, or you're led through a train of thought that is itself, you're habituated into a train of thought in a way that's supposed to be evidential, and I think can, in the right circumstances, I have become convinced, can, in the right circumstances, you know, be actual evidence. So so I think that's really interesting. And then the other thing I just want to mention is that I think, yeah, so this is not a kind of meaning that is like on the table, usually, when we're talking about meaning and philosophy. But it's something that I've become, this idea of exemplification or embodiment, embodied meaning, understood as like it's just right there concretely in the sample itself. That's something that I have come to be more and more interested in, you know, at a theoretical level. So that is a place where, you know, thinking about poetry has led me to think about science, you know, what the role of samples in science. Catherine Elgin has done a lot of interesting work here that I think think it, you, there are fruitful connections to be drawn. We may come back to this because I have so many more questions, but I'm going to start us with the first official question and see where this goes. So this is an Iris Murdoch question. She starts the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? So I was forced to reflect upon this issue by your question. And I think that my temperament is indeed revealed for better or for worse. And, you know, my real my real life temperament is influence. It does influence my philosophy. I think what I think about my temperament is perhaps most as opposed to what I wish my temperament were is perhaps revealed in um, in my parenting. And so I think there are two sort of characteristic things that I do in being a parent that I see also showing up in my papers. So one is a kind of, um, I just want everybody to get along. I'm trying to engineer a compromise, but I want to do that in a sort of principled way that everybody can buy into. And so I'm sort of just trying to build a system that everybody can accept. So I, you know, to my kids, I say things like, you, the two of you keep on fighting, but that's because you, each of you thinks that you can only get the thing you really want by taking this other thing that that one really wants. So can't we just, if you both just step back a little bit, 
look at the thing you really care about and, uh, you know, we can figure out a way we can all have what we want. And it's, you know, this is perhaps not a good era in which to uh, think and hope for that, but that kind of search for rationally grounded compromise, I think, is a deep part of, and to show that, you know, apparently opposing warring camps can get along. That's, I think, a big part of my temperament. And I think it does show up in a bunch of my papers. Um, And then the other thing I think is that I'm a kind of um, excited observer of the curious oddity. So, you know, I'll say to my kids things like, wow, check out that crazy rock. Or, you know, look, there are people standing on their heads in the park or whatever. And, you know, then sort of you know, notice something that you might not notice otherwise and sort of delight in it. And then I think what I often like to do is sort of try to uncover some kind of hidden structure that, you know, makes sense that what could be going on with these people doing this thing? Well, let's try to think about what's a bigger structure that could make sense of that. So that idea of, yeah, making sense of the curious, I think is also something that shows up in my life and and in my papers. Well, I love the use of parenting as a kind of lens to think of temperament and and one's relation to philosophy. I have a follow-up about compromise. I mean, my I, I have, a, I think, a similar instinct in that, just to take one example, I'm sort of interested in Anscombe in philosophy of action. And there's a, a kind of deep opposition between her way of doing philosophy of action and kind of contemporary reductive causal theories of action. And I've always been looking for a kind of middle way. But the result is mostly what that means is just that the Anscombians think I'm not sufficiently Anscomian, and the causal reductionists think, why is he going on about practical knowledge? So it doesn't actually make anyone happy. I mean, is, is that your experience? Or do you feel like the attempt to broker compromise has made you intellectually popular? <laughs> I was going to say, do you mean as a parent? Or do you mean... Uh, well, as- I was meaning in philosophy <laughs> first. Yeah. For, let's start with the easy one, which yeah. is philosophy. Um, so I do feel like actually successfully achieving this kind of compromise means doing a kind of therapy on these two apparently opposing camps and making them, each of them, feel heard about the thing they most care about. But it can be pretty annoying to have somebody come and tell you that, you know, here's the thing that you really care about um, and you've just been confused in thinking that you should want something else, right? So for example, you know, I'm interested in concept and what does it take to have, what is a concept and what is it to have to take, what does it take to have a concept? And I've tried to engineer a kind of middle path between, you know, the rationalists who often think that you have to have a capacity for, you know, uh, meta level reflection on say the credentials of your thoughts in order to have thoughts at all. And then people, minimalists who think, you know, ah, you just, you know, it's just enough to have differential response and categorization. And I've tried to, you know, say, oh, well, you, we could have a bit of each. And and the rationalists or the intellectualists, they they care about uh, epistemic credentials. And so to be, they, you know, I think there is, so I think there is a real risk of making yourself unpopular and rightly so. And I guess I think it puts the pressure on someone in our, your my position, your position to be as charitable as possible, at a kind of fundamental level and not just a sort of, you know, exegetical level. And that is a challenge. I annoy, I do annoy people. What that really does, that really does remind me of parenting. It makes me think of how to talk so philosophers will listen and how to listen so philosophers will talk. There's a kind of skill of, of kind of parental therapy that seems crucial to any success one can aspire to. 
And as in so many cases of therapy, you can have it all right on the the disengaged analytical level. It's the implementation that makes it challenging. Yes. No, that seems totally right. I'm going to ask you a second question that is about your way into philosophy, which is question two, who is your most inspiring teacher? So I feel at this point that I have a lot of candidates. I didn't always feel like philosophy was a, a natural home for me or that I had you know, people, real models. Uh, but at this point, I think I really do feel like there are really inspirational models and, and mentors. So I feel very lucky. Richard Volheim was my advisor, and he was just an amazing, larger-than-life figure, a very grand figure of the, you know, of another era. And he would talk about Freddie, you know, his uh, advisor and colleague, A.J. Ayer. Uh-huh. And, you know, he was an amazing, hilarious storyteller. And also kind of like, there was kind of fearless, non-canonical. He just didn't really, didn't bother him that he was so odd relative to, you know, what other philosophers did. Um, He was just determinedly charting his own path. Um, So that was really inspirational to me. But I think the person who affected me the most and who I think I needed to learn the most from and maybe did was Barry Stroud, who, you know, is, uh, was, well, I don't know what to say even, uh, you know, a incredibly important philosopher in epistemology and maybe metaphysics deeply influenced by and commentator on Kant and Hume and Wittgenstein. And I took a, his undergraduate class on the investig- philosophical investigations, my first semester in graduate school. And the thing that I learned from him, which was very, very difficult, remains difficult for me, is to be patient and to go slow. So the class was just, you know, line by line, section by section, just reading of the investigations. No secondary text, no theorizing, just read it. And that kind of careful patience, a kind of therapeutic action could be, I think it could be paralyzing for his own students. So I'm glad he wasn't my advisor because I think it would have induced writer's block in me. But it is something that that is something that I needed and still need. Um, so that kind of charitable holding to account readiness for there to be something really interesting here, but you want to hear it. That's something. Yeah, that's that's a really important value and one that now I try to you know I see myself wanting to pass on to my students and that I I need his voice in my head telling me to slow down and read more closely. That's great. Those are both really interesting figures, both in some ways iconoclastic and unusual. And patience we could talk about more. It's actually come up in a couple of recent episodes because it I think it came up in the context of trait I wish I had more of as a philosopher for a couple of people. Well, one of the one of them was me. So yeah, I feel like that that's a challenge of philosophy is to be patient enough without becoming just paralyzed. I have a question about Volheim, which is, so I never met him, but there is a story which may be apocryphal about him that I have told many times. And I'm curious about whether this rings true, but it's the story that someone who did know him, I'm trying to remember who it was, said that they saw him when they first met him. He was pacing up and down nervously and they asked him why. And he said, well, it's the first day of class. (laughs) The idea of someone this distinguished and this brilliant getting nervous every year on the first day of class, whether it's true or not, has been a kind of talisman for me that nervous nervousness is part of doing it right. Is that a believable story? Was he like that? What was he like? I think that is a believable story, but 
but I share your amazement that it could be true. So a couple things. One is, so Richard Volheim, I think there were two, you know, to be very crude about it, there are two like very enormous things that he's famous for as a philosopher. One is, you know, he sort of, he coined or was part of the inauguration of the term minimal art. Uh, so very important in philosophy of art and the sort of advent of understanding contemporary art. And then also he was a deep Freudian um, and he especially, you know, wasn't a proponent of Melanie Klein. And there's a way in which he was just, he was comfortable with the depth and darkness of what it's like to be a person uh, so that he would be sort of unsurprised that you would of course be very nervous on the first day of class seems in keeping with him. So he was full of strange phobias. One story he told me was that he, for instance, he could not read a newspaper and he couldn't even have a newspaper in his rooms because he believed uh, his explanation was that when the queen died or somebody, his brother, he was reading about something like some monumental thing, or his mother was reading about some monumental thing in the newspaper, and his brother landed a spitball on the newspaper. And that was the end of newspapers for him. Uh And he also couldn't listen to music at all. So he had sort of phobias and, you know, mm, limitations and complexities in him, but he, you know, was sort of cheerful about it. And sort of just went on, you know. So that seems like uh, that kind of like, yeah, I'm incredibly nervous. <laughs> Yet this is just what we are. This is what we do. That seems characteristic of him. One other thing that I would like to say about him is I heartily recommend his autobiography or memoir, Germs, which is about his his childhood, his, I think, psychologically complex mother, his being a prisoner of war in World War II and sort of stumbling out, escaping by stumbling. I mean, the whole thing is just is an amazing thing. So I and he has a, such a strong voice. So I just I recommend it. Well, that sounds really fascinating. That's great. I'm going to ask you a third official question. So when a stranger asks you what you do for a living, what do you say? Well, it depends. Back, I mean, it's hard to remember because I don't actually see anybody or talk to anybody. Yes, anymore. right. I should say, when strangers <laughs> used to be able to ask <laughs> yes. you what you did for a living, what did you reply? Yeah. So, you know, if it was somebody sort of on the street or on the schoolyard or something, I typically say, I teach college. If I'm at a party or on an airplane, what I like to do is sort of say, I'm a philosopher. And just let it sort of hang there in the utter bafflement that that often induces. One thing that has happened to me more than a couple times, which I don't understand, is that people say, oh, psychology, you must like people then. Uh (laughs) As if they can't even parse the idea of being a philosopher. And then one thing that also happens, which I find really gratifying, is often if I'm in a taxi and the driver is from another country, other countries, people actually study philosophy, you know, in high school or whatever. And so they will say, oh, well, I've always liked Spinoza Uh or, you know, well, here's my view about Epicurus. And I just find that amazing. And uh, then I always feel like I don't know, I can't say anything intelligent and I feel embarrassed. So, but I enjoy the sort of the, the puzzlement 
of as I watch people integrate their image of Socrates and Plato, you know, with this person standing before them. Well, maybe this connects naturally to the next question, too, which is, if you weren't a philosopher, what do you think you would do? So I only decided fairly late in graduate school to become a, to, you know, continue on as a professional philosopher. I, you know, was not, a. I only decided late. I, I did not intend to originally go to graduate school in philosophy. Um, between college and graduate school, I worked in adult education, especially in ESL, English as a second, teaching English as a second language, uh, and with people who were getting GEDs. And so, and I did program design and, and implementation. So, I, and that, so that was always just my plan. I think at this point, given what I've learned and I, what the way the world seems to be, I think I would probably try to work in the prisons. And maybe I'd do some philosophy. I mean, this is, depends on how I got to this alternative path. But I would especially be interested in helping people, you know, learn to read and write in a clear, analytic, you know, clear-headed way, uh, which is, in a way, all I think we really do anyway as philosophers. So in a way, it's cheating, right? Because I'd be trying to do the same thing, but in a different venue. Well, on the one hand, that suggests a lack of regret about being a philosopher, a sort of commitment to it. But I think my follow-up was going to be whether you, whether you do have regrets. Like, do you, do you sometimes wish you had carried on in teaching or found a more practically applicable avenue for your intellectual interests? I go back and forth. I mean, so I, the reason I didn't want to be a full professional philosopher for many years was that I felt it was too self-indulgent. I yeah. felt like it was something that I, you know, I like geeking out on, you know, whatever, but, and I have a great time arguing and thinking about these things, but that didn't seem to me to be the basis of a sufficiently meaningful and valuable life. One of the things I love about teaching at Rutgers is the student population is often, you know, there are lots of first generation students or returning students or people who, for whom it's not a straightforward path into academia. Um, and I love talking with those students just anyway, and then seeing them, these doors opening for them and seeing them think that philosophy of all things can be interesting and exciting for them. So that gives me a bit of what I feel I was missing, but I still do feel, so I don't, wouldn't say regret exactly, but guilt. Yes. And, you know, I still am. So I, I, there is a strong part of me that wants to sort of figure out how to recalibrate the many things in my life to make more room for some of that. Well, on the subject of negative emotions and Guilt, guilt among them. I'm going to ask you one last question. This is another Iris Murdoch question, beginning with the quote, it's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, what is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? So I think as a philosopher, the thing I'm most afraid of is, and I suppose I should welcome it, but is empirical falsification. So I think of philosophy that my own way of thinking about what the task of philosophy is, is to refine and systematize folk intuition and sort of make what we always already thought make the most systematic sense possible. But I think that has to be anchored in 
how things actually are. And so, you know, in my own work, I often am reading cognitive science or linguistics or, you know, social psychology. And of course, I often find things that corroborate what I'm thinking already intuitively. But, you know, I do worry that there's just going to be a flat out demonstration. Not a, and so I'm not so afraid of a counterexample because I feel like at the theoretical level, there's something right about my intuitions. And, you know, if there's just a theoretical counterexample, I can figure out what I really cared about that remains true despite that counterexample. So, yeah, of course, I probably got some, you know, something, maybe something very deep wrong. But what I really am afraid of, I think, is that our whole, even the most refined version of that intuition, gut intuition I have and that I'm trying to make sense of and integrate with what other people have thought is going to be falsified by just the facts. Well, I think it's good. We can end with a philosopher who's afraid of empirical facts. I think that's very, (laughs) (laughs) that seems perfect. Thank you you so much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. um, It's been delightful and lots of fun. Elizabeth Camp is professor of philosophy at Rutgers University. She's the author of Slurring Perspectives, Thinking with Maps, and other essays in the philosophy of language and mind. Thanks for listening to five questions.